Good evening. It's good to be with you again this evening. I'd like to begin with a question tonight. <clears throat> just you don't need to answer it, but just think for a minute. What is success? What do you think of when you think of success? What is it? This is a bit of a secular definition. Success is to be able to carry money without spending it, to be able to bear an injustice without retaliating, to be able to keep on the job until it's finished, to be able to do one's duty even when one is not watched, to accept criticism without letting it whip you. Success is speaking words of praise and cheering other people's ways in doing just the best you can with every task and every plan. It's silence when your speech would hurt, politeness when your neighbors curt. It's deafness when the scandal flows and sympathy with others' woes. It's loyalty when duty calls, it's courage when disaster falls. It's patience when the hours are long, it's found in laughter and in song. It's in the silent time of prayer, in happiness and in despair. In all of life and nothing less, we find the thing we call success. Success is something that we all work at in some area or another. We all want success. We might want to succeed in our work, our occupations. We want success there. We seek success in raising our families, children that are in school. You seek success when you take a test. We, we, everyone seeks success in something. But what does it mean to have success in our Christian life? What does it mean to be a successful Christian? It means to live in the joy of the Lord. So one day we can hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think when it's boiled down, that is success as a Christian. Tonight, I would like to give you three truths to live by that will guarantee you success as a Christian. If you follow these three things, I will guarantee you success as a Christian. To succeed as a Christian, you need to be fearful, you need to be fruitful, and you need to be faithful. First of all, to be fearful. The fear of God is a thought or a concept that is confusing. I know I used to think the fear of God was, when we think of fear, we think of being afraid. That's not entirely what the fear of God is. We hear terms like the fear of God is respect. And I think if that's what your definition of the fear of God is, you're not going deep enough. The fear of God is more than respect. Living in the fear of God is to study the character of God and then make our decisions in life based on his character. That's what living in the fear of God is. I'm going to attempt to give you a new perspective on what the fear of God is so we can understand what it is, so we can understand how to live in that fear. The first part of the fear of God is to recognize the greatness of God. 
Did you ever think about the greatness of God? Turn with me in your Zion's praises to number 50. I sing the mighty power of God. As we sing this song, I want you to think about the greatness of God and how it pertains to our, our fear and our reverence and how we live in the fear of God. Let's stand as we sing number 50. I sing the mighty power of God. I sing the mighty power of God Did you notice all the phrases in that song speaking to the greatness of God? Daniel Kaufman says this, When we think of God, we think of the one who has not only called heaven and earth into existence, but who also holds the universe in the hollow of his hands, ruling and overruling all things in accordance with his divine wisdom and pleasure, the one who presides over the destiny of men and of nations, and who moves the heaven and earth in behalf of and for the welfare of its creatures. It is as that we now behold him. His eye is in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his notice, and even the very hairs of our head are numbered. That's a good definition of the greatness of God. Exodus 33, verse 20 says, And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. 
Job 4, verse 9. By the blast of God, they perish. And by the breath of his nostrils, they are consumed. That's speaking of the greatness of God. This is the great God who created your heart that pumps 3,000 gallons of blood a day. (coughs) This is the great God who makes a lightning bolt of 100 million volts. I'm not an electrician, but I think that's a lot. This is the great God who makes stars 25 times bigger than the orbit of the earth. The greatness of God. In understanding the fear of God, we need to understand the judgment of God. And the question comes to you tonight, are you prepared for the impartial judgment of God? 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. There is judgment, and God is a God of judgment. He's a God of impartial judgment. Voltaire was a French philosopher, spent much of his life taunting God, said in his dying days, he said, Oh, thou much despised and blasphemed God. Hell were but a refuge if it would hide thy face from me. Can you imagine the face of an angry God? He said, Oh, thou much despised and blasphemed God. Hell were but a refuge if it would hide thy face from me. And this is... This isn't a, a part of the fear of God that we like to think about, the judgment of God. But the truth is, if we're living right with God, the judgment of God is nothing to be feared, to be afraid of. It's to be feared in that we reverence and respect it. But if you're living right with God, the judgment of God is not something to be afraid of. And I think we're losing that today. We're losing that the reverence and the surety that God is a God of judgment. Mike Yesenelli said this, We have defanged the tiger of truth. We have tamed the lion. The tragedy of modern faith is that we are no longer capable of being terrified. The tragedy of modern faith is that we are no longer capable of being terrified. Are there anything about the greatness and the judgment of God that terrify you. These attributes of God, the greatness of God and the judgment of God, are, are attributes of God that hold us reverently at a distance from Him. In, in fear, they hold us reverently distant from Him. But there's another part of God that we, we can't just look at those as, as being the fear of God, there's, a, there's another whole part we have to look at, and that is the love of God and the mercy of God. And these are things of God that draw, draw us to him. The greatness and the judgment of God tend to hold us reverently distant. But the love of God... Fathers, would you give up your only son 
to be tortured the most cruel way possible here on earth. God loved us so much that he sent his only son that we could believe on him and have everlasting life. That's the love of God. Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to. The love of God gives it to us as a gift. The mercy of God. God knows my secret sins. He knows your secret sins. And yet, the love and the mercy of God hold forgiveness out to you. Forgiveness is available for you. That's the mercy of God. There's nothing we can do to earn these things. And yet God is still offering forgiveness to you. The mercy of God. To live in the fear of God is to live with reverence for his commands and for the institutions he has set up. How many of you have ever been to the ocean, an ocean or the Great Lakes? Raise your hand high. If you've been, okay, many of you. So you'll understand what I'm going to talk about here. When you go to the Great Lakes or the ocean and you go down by the water, you will see the waves coming in and they, they crash and then they go up on the shore and then they, they go back in and the next one's right behind it and it comes. You know what I'm talking about? What do you do when you see that? Well, maybe you don't, but what do children do? What have you done in the past? What you do is you see that wave coming up and you chase it down in. You chase that wave down and then the next one comes. Then you run backwards as fast as you can, right? You've seen people do this, right? That's what we do. Too many times, I think that's the way a Christian lives. The wave being the world, we run as close to that wave as we can without getting wet. A wave, a wave comes up, the water comes up on shore, and we chase that wave back in with our music. But the next wave is right there and it chases, chases us back, we run backwards, then we, we follow the next one in with our clothing and our styles, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. And we get as close as we can to that wave. We're running backwards as fast as we can so we don't get our feet wet. But I have never, ever seen somebody do that and not get their feet wet. It always happens. That is not living in the fear of God when we chase the waves or chase the tide of the world like that. That is not reverencing God's commands and the institutions he has set up So to boil this all down, what is the fear of God? I believe, in a nutshell, the fear of God is our response in balancing the judgment, the wrath, and the greatness of God with the love and the mercy and the peace of God. That's what the living in the fear of God is. Balancing those two together and coming together in... Reverence isn't the word, but it's the only one I could come up with. It's balancing those two things. That's living in the fear of God. And if you can live fearfully in the fear of God, that is a third of guaranteeing you success as a Christian. Isaiah 33, 6 says, And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation, for the fear of the Lord is his treasure. 
the difficulty in living in the fear of God. I think the greatest difficulty in living in the fear of God is that the fear of man is battling for preeminence. Which one are we going to fear? You can't do both. Sir Henry Havelock had these words inscribed on his tomb. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. I like that. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. And I guess in our humanity, we're so afraid of what people are going to think or what's going to happen or we're just afraid of man that we allow that to blind our perspective of the greatness of God and the judgment of God and the love of God and the mercy of God because man is tangible. People are tangible. That's what we see and that's what we feel and that's what's that's what's first real to us. But I want to tell you tonight that the fear of God needs to be real to you as well. It needs to be more real to you. The greatness of God needs to be more real to you. The judgment of God needs to be real to you. The love of God needs to be real to you. The mercy of God needs to be real to you. I'm going to read some verses and I want you to listen closely. They describe what the fear of God looks like in our lives. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy in the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and his children shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In Proverbs, there's two verses. There's more than two, but two I want to look at. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? What is it? Wisdom. Okay, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what else? Knowledge. They're both there. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So which is it? Wisdom or knowledge, they're not the same thing. I think it's both. Because when you think about it, what do you get when you combine wisdom and knowledge? When you put wisdom and knowledge together, you get discernment and understanding. That's what it is. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And you put those two together, you'll have wisdom, you'll have discernment and understanding. When we live in the fear of God, we base our decisions and our conduct on the character of God. Turn with me to John 15. To live a successful Christian life, you need to be fearful, and now you need to be fruitful. To live a successful Christian life, you need to be fruitful. John 15, I'll read the first nine verses. Follow along with me as I read. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. 
Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. I'll stop reading there. We are called, as Christians, to bear fruit. And I'm always impressed with the clarity of this passage. How God compares a fruitful tree or fruitful plant to a fruitful Christian. The branch that is not connected to the vine or to the tree will not bring forth fruit, but it will die. It, it makes perfect sense. And it makes just as much sense for the Christian who is not connected to Christ or to the vine. He will not bring forth fruit either. We try, or we can try, you can try, to do all kinds of good things. You can do many good things on your own, but unless we are connected to the vine, we are nothing. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So if a branch isn't connected to the tree, it won't bring forth fruit. If a branch is connected to the tree and doesn't bring forth fruit, it's going to be cut off and thrown away. And the same is true for the Christian. Verse 6. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. Men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. I have five crab apple trees at home. Three of them produce really big, or I think they're big, crab apples. And my wife makes some good crab apple jelly out of it. And a few years ago I noticed in about the beginning of July these all of them, not just those three trees, but all five of my crabapple trees were, the leaves were turning brown and just falling off. It was two or three months early. And I did some research on that. Here the leaves that were falling off or the ones that were ready to fall off were kind of shriveled up and they had black brown spots on the bottom of them. And I discovered that it was a, a disease called apple scab. And the only it's an airborne fungus. The only way to get rid of this fungus is to collect the the diseased leaves from the ground, rake them up, cut the branches off that are infected and burn them. That's the only way to get rid of this stuff. The same is true for our lives. If you have disease in your life, it will affect your fruit.
Galatians 5, a familiar passage, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. I'm always impressed. It's not the fruits of the Spirit are. It's the fruit of the Spirit is. It's all of those. That is all going to be part of the believer's life. The fruit of the Spirit is, and it lists these things. Did you ever look at those words and how what they mean? What the fruit of the Spirit is? Love. A love for the brotherhood. A love for God's word enough to study it daily. Joy. A joy that cannot be taken away by a bad day or difficult circumstances. Peace is a calm spirit that rests in the promises of God. Long-suffering is a patience with those around you who are difficult to get along with. Gentleness is a gentle spirit that is careful with words so that it doesn't offend. Goodness, a desire to stay away from the edge and to do what is right. Faith, be conscientious and trustworthy. Meekness, willing to accept criticism, be approachable. Temperance, self-controlled and moderate, taking life seriously. A fruitful Christian will bear good fruit. There was once a boy who would try to escape from his bedroom window after being punished. And he would climb out his window and there was a fruit tree just outside his window that he would climb down and then he would go off and meet his friends while his parents assumed he was in his room being punished. One day the boy heard his father say that he's going to cut that tree down. It hasn't given any fruit in the last couple years. It's just an eyesore. Let's get rid of it, which alarmed this boy because what is he going to do now when his parents send him to his room for a punishment? So he got the idea. That night he and his friend went and they bought a bushel of apples and they came home and they all night long were busy and they tied apples to this tree and it looked good. They tied apples all over the tree and he went in, went to bed and slept a few hours and woke up just in time to hear his dad come in the door just astounded. He couldn't believe it. He said to himself, I can't believe it. That tree has been dead. And all of a sudden I woke up and there's apples all over it. And the boy's thinking, this is great. This tree is going to stay. I'm going to have my escape. And the dad said, what's even more amazing is that's a pear tree. (laughs) A tree will bear fruit after its kind. A Christian will produce good fruit. Putting fruit on a dead tree does not make the fruit or the tree alive. We can dress ourselves up however we want. We can do good things so that people notice, but if that's our motive, we're putting dead fruit on a dead tree, and that's not going to make it alive. This boy also forgot that fruit is not an instant thing. Fruit starts small, but it continues to grow. In a Christian, our good fruit or our good 
our goodness coming from God in us. It starts small, but it will continue to grow. We're not going to have mature fruit right away. To live a successful Christian life, you need to be fearful, you need to be fruitful, and you need to be faithful. So I was pondering, meditating on faithfulness in the life of a Christian. My mind was drawn to the song, I Would Be True. And your Zion's praises turn with me to number 430. Let's sing this song, and as we sing it, think of the faithfulness of being a Christian. There, are, I, I said it earlier, I said before, the Christian life is not easy. It's not meant to be easy. But we need to be faithful through it. Number 430, I would be true. <laughs>
To be faithful is to be loyal, to be constant, to be steadfast. We have had very few physical tests of our faithfulness. Like many of the early Christians, or even early Anabaptists, or believers in pretty much any other part of the world. We've had very little physical tests for our faithfulness. I believe the tests for our faithfulness come in a much more subtle and possibly a more dangerous way. (coughs) I think that, and this is just a few things, but I think you'll get what I'm trying to say here. I think that things like technology and our busyness and our prosperity have been a test or a distraction from the faithfulness of our calling. Our faithfulness to God cannot be a fair weather faithfulness when it's easy or when it's convenient. We can be unfaithful in many, many ways. We can be unfaithful in our thoughts. We can be unfaithful in our motives. And these are things only God sees. I don't know what your thoughts are and I don't know what your motives are. But God does. We can be unfaithful in those areas. And unfaithfulness to God, we may not think of as being as serious as being unfaithful to a spouse. But God does. We don't see it maybe as serious because there aren't immediate consequences for it. God likens our unfaithfulness to him as being as serious as a husband being unfaithful to his wife. James 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. But on the other hand, he also tells us that faithfulness has eternal benefits. Revelation 2 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. There was once a lady who asked John Wesley, said, Suppose he were to know that he would die at 12 o'clock midnight tomorrow. How would he spend the intervening time? If someone would ask you that, what would, what would you do? If you were going to die tomorrow at midnight, How would you spend the time between now and then? This was his response. He said, I would spend it just as I spend it now. I would preach this evening and again tomorrow at five. After that, I would rise and go to Tewksbury and preach in the afternoon, meet the societies in the evening. I would then go to Reverend... I would go to the reverend's house who expects to entertain me, talk and pray with the family as usual, retire to my room at 10 o'clock and commend myself to my heavenly father, lie down to rest and wake up in glory. He didn't plan to change anything. He didn't need to change anything. He was already felt, and I believe, he was living faithfully already. Would you need to change anything? Would you need to go and make something right with somebody? Would you need to change some habits? Would you have that room in your heart? Would you need to sweep that quickly to me that is faithful living living a life 
to the fullest and not having to look back with regrets. Making the most of every situation for God. When we live in light of eternity with faithfulness to God, we have nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. And we live every moment in light of eternity. In closing, I'd like you to remember these three things. Be fearful, be fruitful, and be faithful. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God.